0: Our scripture reading is today from Second Samuel 18, 1 through 5. And if you have a pew Bible, you can find that at page 269. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David set out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, and Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city." The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by the hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom.
1: Morning. That prayer slide. I just finished watching Birds, the Alfred Hitchcock movie. It's a triggering slide. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 18, 33 verses here, so we're going to go through some of this pretty quickly. That battle that David is about to enter, he's camped out at a city called Mahanaim. The battlefield is a little bit outside of that. And David's army, as Maxwell read, would not allow him to go out onto this battlefield because they knew that he was the main target. If he's taken out, then this war is over. So they convince him to stay behind in the city. And you'll notice that the main focus of this chapter isn't on this battle, that the description of this battle is just really in these three verses, in verses 6 through 8. Let me read those verses for us. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And so the next ten verses focus on Absalom and David's army, not the battle, how Absalom's life ended. And you'll notice that Absalom is the center character of this chapter. So verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I had felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel and Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Again, Absalom is the central character in chapter 18. In fact, he's the central character since chapter 13. Uh, David gets some um, attention there in chapters 13 and 14. But it's mostly Absalom... From 13 until this point, you go back to verse 5, and it reads, And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So, how did they do? Maybe everyone else did okay. Joab, not so good. Joab didn't do so well. You notice that Joab is quite assertive in this chapter, and you notice how passive David is in this chapter and all of the soldiers knew exactly what King David wanted verse 12 but the man said to Joab even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver I would not reach out my hand against the king's son for an hour hearing the king commanded you Abishai and Ittai for my sake protect the young man Absalom and Absalom is who David is concerned about he's not concerned with anyone he's not concerned with anything else And you skip down to verse 29 and 32. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? 32, the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? It's David's only concern. That's all he's really concerned about at this point. And verses 9 through 18 are telling us the story of Absalom's faith. But you notice that Absalom doesn't speak through any of it. Previous chapters, Absalom's talking quite a bit. He's giving orders and commands, and he's doing all these things. And it seems that he's in control. And here in chapter 18, it shifts. It shows us he's not in control anymore. There's nothing to be said. And he seemed to be in earlier chapters. By the time we're in chapter 18, he's lost it all. He's lost all control. You see, when we look at the world, and we look at the people in the world... We may see and we might think that they are in control, but there will be a chapter 18 moment for them. That God is ultimately in control. And even though David is passive and he doesn't act, you notice that Joab does, that Joab is the assertive one, and he's the one that rids of Absalom, verses 14 through 17. And the way they encounter each other doesn't seem like a planned encounter. They're in this forest, and Absalom is confronted with David's army. So he runs the other way with his mule. And and it seems that Absalom retreats so that he can go get reinforcements. And then this accident, getting his head caught in this tree, happens. And so he's dangling from this tree. And Joab sees him, that he's still alive there, and he thrusts three javelins into Absalom. Absalom. And so Joab's armor bearers finish off what Joab started and they threw him into this pit and they bury him there. Now Absalom is a picture of a cursed man. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23. His body shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. Now this is the end of one who seemed to be in control, who had all the momentum behind him to become the next king from this coup, who was able to work the masses into believing him to be the one in control, to to be the one in charge, and this is the end of the one who attempts to not follow the will of God. And this is the same cursed fate for those who oppose God's kingdom, who oppose God's chosen king, Jesus, And his people. And so Absalom's end is a picture of the end for those who are against God. Against his church. And David hopes for a different outcome, but but Joab's dealing in reality. Joab was ordered to deal with David's son Absalom gently. But Joab knows that, you know, we're at war with this guy. And there's nothing gentle about war. Because he's for sure not looking to be gentle with any of us. We are going to be killed on this battlefield. And even though David's orders are very clear and he makes it public to everyone there, David's just not exercising wisdom. David's caught up in his personal feelings, he's getting caught up in sentimentality. And he's willing to sacrifice his own army, he's willing to sacrifice his own morality for Absalom. He is willing to ask for the lives of so many people as well as his own throne in order to save his evil son. And you look at what happened here and it's not that David's wishes couldn't be followed. Joab is hanging on a tree. It's a perfect opportunity that presents itself to listen to King David's orders to be followed. He's just dangling in a tree. He's still alive. And Joab and his men could have just brought Absalom down without killing him. They could have dealt with him gently. As David ordered. You notice that this soldier reports. This Absalom hanging from a tree to Joab. And, and he doesn't act on it. But this isn't Joab. Joab ignores the king's orders. And he kills Absalom why did Joab do that well it seems that Joab didn't have any other alternative because he knows as long as Absalom's alive there's an evil present an evil that is just looking at any time to overthrow the rightfully placed king So what other option is there if we have to worry about this evil rebellion popping up whenever he has a chance to lead again? What option do we really have? And Joab knew, you know, that King David, he has a soft spot for Absalom. And this is endangering our entire kingdom. This is endangering our entire existence. And letting this evil remain, it will only grow into something more. You might be able to contain it for a little time, a limited time, but it's not something that just goes away. And David is being this sentimental father rather than a responsible king. And the only way to remove evil is to get rid of it for good. And Joab assumes this responsibility that the king is supposed to have who can't make the wise and the right decision But Joab knows, I can't let the cancer remain. I have to cut it out. And so he has to cut it out, even though David wants to let the cancer remain. But it's going to overtake him. You have to cut it out. Verse 19. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord had delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. You notice that it's Joab who's directing the troops. He's directing the leaders as to what to do and who's going to deliver news to David. And if you look ahead, it's Joab in chapter 19 who tells David how things really are. And then in chapter 20, it's Joab who takes out another rival and he puts down another uprising and Joab is the one who is assertive in this time and David is just really passive. David gave this command in verse 5. Joab does not follow it. David is the king but he's not acting like one. And he's not active in trying to keep his throne. It's just this unruly story, not just this part of it, but you notice how the chapter unfolds to be this chain of events that's just really chaotic. In chapters before, Absalom looks like he's the one who has the upper hand, but then we find him with his head stuck in this oak tree while his mule runs away. It's kind of a funny scene, right? Like, it's odd. It's odd. It's this ironic and tragic picture of this prince who has attempted this coup and he's mustered up all the, this army behind him and he has power and he has, all, he has a senior advisor that, that directed him. He has all these different things and everything seems to go for him. And then in verse 18, he sets up this pillar for himself to commemorate himself. But in verse 17, he's just buried in a pit. And another chaotic event is when Joab sends this Cushite to deliver this news to David, Ahimaaz wants to deliver the news to David, and so he just keeps bugging Joab, let me go, let me go, let me go, and he's just tired of Ahimaaz, and he's just like, go, you go. Even though the Cushite leaves first, Ahimaaz gets to David more quickly, and it's all this series of chaotic events throughout this whole chapter. Verse 24, Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up in the roof of the gates by the wall, and and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised up their hand against my lord the king. And the king said... Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside, stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. So David's watchmen, they spot the Cushite and Ahimaaz running toward them, and they're convinced that the news is good. Ahimaaz delivers the news to David first, and he says, All is well. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. But to David, the good news is not just a victory in battle, it's about the safety of Absalom. And so he asked Ahimaaz about Absalom, and Ahimaaz isn't completely honest with his response. King, I saw this great commotion, I I don't know what it was, I, I don't know. Ahimaaz, you liar. Because you, you knew, you know. has told David a partial truth. But, but not the whole truth. Look at verse 31. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And so the Cushite tells the whole truth. He gave David the good news that they won the battle, but the bad news that Absalom's dead. And we've known this to be the outcome since 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 14, which reads this, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said the council of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. We just didn't know how it was going to happen, but we knew this was going to be happening. We knew that this was going to be the result. We knew that chapter, we knew that chapter 18, verse 5, was not going to happen, or David is requesting this, and the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom, and the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. David's deliverance also means Absalom's destruction. And the sovereignty of God is going to happen despite David's feelings and his desires, and David and Absalom. They cannot coexist. And there are people like David today who think that they can. And they let their feelings dictate what really needs to be done. And it's similar to cancer within one's body. It can't coexist long with a person without an action to save that patient. It has to be destroyed. And in that healing process, there's pain. Pain is often a component of healing, and they go together. There is no salvation for the church unless God brings a decisive judgment on his enemies. Take a look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And in the Lord's prayer, we pray, deliver us from evil. And with the deliverance is the destruction of evil. All of the cancer has to be removed. None of it can remain. It can't be dealt with gently. If there is a surgery to remove the cancer, it has to be removed completely. Otherwise, it comes back. And it harms the patient. And sometimes the surgeon looks at it and removes that part, that organ, and thinks, we got it all. But there are these microscopic cells that are still in there that they couldn't see. And it just takes a few to cause all that havoc and for one to believe that they're in remission, but they're really not, and it comes back. You see, people are like Ahima has in terms of not speaking the whole truth. They want to just deliver the comfortable partial truth so that they don't hurt people's feelings. And they're afraid to talk about the Absalom's, the evil, the sin. They're afraid to deliver the good news of that and to stand up against those things and to say, we do need to get rid of all of it. And our society is like that. We don't want to call sin, sin. We don't want to call things out the way that we are mandated by the Bible to say that's a sin and it needs to be cut out no matter how gently we're trying to deal with things you cannot do that there's a remnant there and even though you're thinking I'm getting rid of maybe the biggest part of it because we can all agree that murder is evil so we'll cut out that piece but then you're leaving these little remnants these little microscopic sinful things that it's it's birthing other things and it's so serious that it's costing David a son. Actually, it's more than one son. We'll get to that a little bit later. But this is the same thing in terms of when we're looking at a picture of Christ and Antichrist, that the Cushite is in verses 31 and 32 presenting this that the preservation of God's kingdom includes the perishing of God's enemies. And it's just this chaotic string of events. And even though there's this victory for David, it actually brings him into this time of deep mourning and grieving. And it's just ironic because people are usually typically celebrating and joyous after a victory. And in reading ahead to chapter 19, you'll notice that David's army comes back in shame, even though they are victorious. And it's just ironic that even in victory, there's a sadness in it. Verse 33... And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. See, David wanted so badly to preserve Absalom, to have him safe. He wanted his soldiers to deal gently with Absalom and he explicitly told them in verse 5 because David knows how war is. He knows the reality of war. He's warred his whole life. But he's still worried about Absalom. And he's waiting at Mahanaim for the news of what happened. He's preoccupied with Absalom. David is devastated with the news of his son and the writer wants us to get this very clear picture of David's anguish that the details of this story start in verse 24, it goes all the way to verse 33, rather than what can just be told to us in one verse, Absalom died, and that was it. But no, it's like this whole thing. Why is David in such anguish? Of course he is, he just lost his son. It's very normal for a father to grieve the loss of their child, but there's something more to David's loss than just losing a child. There's another layer of anguish. Can you imagine, you as a parent, the guilt you would feel if the reason why your child died is because of you. David knows the reason that Absalom is dead is because of him. It's not simply that his child died. He died because of me. I I did this. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun." for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by his deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. David's guilt is causing him really great grief because back in chapter 12, it's speaking of this infant son with Bathsheba, chapter 12, verse 19, that died. But that's not the only child that died. You go to chapter 13, he loses Amnon. Here in 18, he loses Absalom. He's lost several children. And all of it, he knew, was because of his sin. His sin caused all of this. And in verse 33, he says, Would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son. You see, David was the one guilty of sin, but it's his children who suffer the consequences of his sin. It's not to say that Abnon and Absalom were like these great guys who weren't guilty of sin. They were. They had plenty of guilt on their own. But it's clear that David lost his ways. He lost his chesed. We talked about this a lot in previous chapter, that word Chesed, when he exercised Chesed to Mephibosheth in chapter nine, and when he practiced Chesed in chapter ten with Hanan, this is a changed David. He's not the same Chesed deliverer anymore. By chapter twelve, he's anti-Chesed. Look how he deals with Bathsheba and how he deals with Uriah. He's like totally different guy. And he says, would I had died instead of you? David knew I'm the one that deserved to die. I'm the one who's guilty. And, and this is what my sin has caused. I, I've caused the death of my own children. And it's just adding on to the grief that even though everything around him is now safe, he has his home, he has his existing family, he has all this stuff just like a lot of us do. We have this stuff, and we think we're safe, but still we find this grieved king who's suffering because of his own doing, of his own guilt. And the son of David, David's descendant, the promised one, Jesus, comes to change all of that. That he comes to bear our griefs and our sorrows. That, that our guilt and our doing, being our own Absaloms and Amnons we're not free of anything. We're guilty ourselves. But Jesus comes to bear our griefs and he carries our sorrows. Isaiah 53 verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And so we have this King David who's guilty and sinful. And he has these sons. And they are guilty and they're sinful. And yet we're promised Messiah through the lineage of David that he's Jesus' son of David. But this time around he's going to carry our burdens. He's going to carry our sorrows and he is also killed but there is a overcoming of the grave which we celebrated at Easter the resurrection that's why the resurrection is the most important occurrence in all of our faith because without it we don't have one he overcomes death he overcomes that sin what we have to vigorously cut out He's there to take. Because we can't do it on our own. You can't perform that surgery on yourself. I can't even tie a tie sometimes. Like, I mean, like, how are you going to do that to yourself? So God has this wonderful plan of still giving us reconciliation, redemption through Jesus Christ, the son of David, who comes to carry our sorrows, to bear our griefs. Let us pray. Lord, I lift up anyone here who does not know you as son of David, son of God. How different you are from Absalom, from Amnon, from David. That you still use us broken people, us guilt-ridden people. And in that redemption, there is a suffering on our part. There is a desire to hold on to the Absaloms of our life, that that we're not willing to cut these intimate parts of our lives that, that so affect us, that we want to hold on to those things and we want to ask to deal gently with those things when those are the very things that are going to kill us. So we ask God that you would give us wisdom, a wisdom that David seems to lack and that you've given to joab and so may we have that mindset lord that not the rebellious mindset of a joab to oppose a king but to be assertive with those things and and to be in obedience and submission to what you have for us in jesus name amen for anyone wanting to explore more what following jesus means or if you just need prayer um, susanna's in the right front pew and Mike's in the center pew here in the front. They'd be honored to pray with you. At this time, we're going to take communion together. And so if you need these elements, just please hold up your hand and we'll get that over to you. But first, we'll look at the wafer. That's here, a symbol of Christ's body broken for us. And so here's the seriousness of that sin. And we're we're looking at the son of David who lost multiple sons And, and the costliness of all of this that this cost Christ his life. And we take this in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for us in remembrance of him in celebration of him in anticipation of his return because he has told us to take this in remembrance of him until his return. We take this in Jesus' name. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ. His blood spilled for us. We take this in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. One that you willingly gave. I don't think Amnon and Absalom were willingly wanting to give their lives especially Not for others, but you, Lord, who come to bear our sins, to carry our sorrows, to bear our grief. Thank you for doing that for us. In Jesus' name, amen.